I, I got into the DJ world. You know, I was a snob before. I discounted DJs until I met Giles Peterson. And I said, wow, you can dance to jazz. Incredible. So, and that was my door to knowing people like, like them and like, you know, Masters at Work, DJ Spina. So before I know, they had, had embraced my music because I, I started being influenced by them. You know, what's the BPM? Why that kick drum? Why soulful vocals? Why at midnight you shouldn't be playing 118 BPM? You know, and Winehouse music, you don't go faster than 127. You know, that kind of stuff. So I learned about it. Sunlight Square started becoming popular. To a certain extent, I had some minor hits anyway. And then I started making some content for the Dr. Mix channel because I, I wanted to get more business. And before I knew, the Dr. Mix YouTube channel exploded. So nowadays I've got 600,000 subscribers on it, which you know for the, for the pro audio musical instrument niche is pretty significant. So, so nowadays I get money from Roland, Yamaha, and all the guys to, to make videos with their keyboards. And I wake up every morning, thank the universe, pinch myself, and keep on going. And, and, and if it wasn't for, for all of this, uh, I would have no business sitting in front of you today. So the, uh, the most valuable thing that I can say today for, for all of us is, uh, okay, so the, greater, uh, the greatest artists that we know, from Miles Davis to, uh, to Jimi Hendrix, to uh, Muhammad Ali, to artists, interesting. Uh, but they, they all are great communicators, right? So, so in a time where the attention is on this device, and I think that there is no doubt that the attention is on this device. Um, our duty as entertainer, uh, entertainers is to try and tell our story. You know, I don't know if you, if you notice, but when you post a SoundCloud link and say, check out my latest release, you get three likes. One is from your mom, if you're lucky to have her. But when you post a video, then you get, then you get views. Because, of course, you know, you have to figure out that in that movement of swiping, you know, an interesting video where you show some interesting keyboard or some interesting stuff will get more attention than the millionth track that have been pushed uh, down my throat. <laughs> so, um, so content is really what changed my life. I've always made a living as a musician. I was doing all right, actually. But... Making videos, making you know, making content for the people to enjoy, where I tell my story, is almost more important than the music I make. If the music I make is good, good for me, win. But if you don't create content uh, for the modern medium, because don't forget, technology always wins. You you, you can fight it and you will be dragged kicking and screaming into the new era. You know, I remember times where people didn't want to give up the uh, Bla uh, Blackberry because the iPhone didn't have buttons. You know, that kind of stuff. I hear this story over and over again. What are we going to do with this sampler? Copyright is finished. There you go. Oh, you got off. You win. He just won. <laughs> um, you know, what are we going to do with the sampler? People are going to steal music. What are we going to do? The music business is completely goes apeshit because they don't know what to do with it. In the meantime, hip hop is born. And that's the people who embraced the technology. So, you know, you don't have to. But, you know, I see technology as a, an opportunity. We call that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So even if you, if you don't need great cameras you, don't, you just need an iphone and even if you are nobody you say hi this is my story i have a day job i've always loved music and i'm trying to make it as an artist today i'm doing this song what do you think please leave a comment and if you have good suggestions please leave a comment below do that at least once a week and your music will get more exposure than being signed to any label on the planet
excellent, Claudio. Thank you. Totally giving us the perspective from a European way of looking at it also. And good luck on your band and your future endeavors. Give it up for Claudio. He's rushing to see Quincy Jones. He's leaving. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Claudio. Ciao, gracias. Ciao, ciao. No, me and Victor were laughing about something. We were wondering if we should stop the clock and pretend that it's one o'clock for Claudia to let him keep going because we say he, this is not enough time for him to explain it. That was a three-minute conversation. went pretty good. You know, the thing that we're going to talk about Maurice Joshua in a second, Eric Cupper. I'm going I'm to hand that mic over. But Quincy Jones said something interesting, and all these gentlemen on this panel are going to agree. It's not the peaks that you have to make it through. It's when it drops into the valley. The valley can be a long stretch. And I have to say blessed to all these men right here because we're talking about not just generations, we're talking about like 75, 80 years of full experience. I, I played Maurice Joshua. I remember in Italy in around 1991, 92, okay? Pre to that, I knew him already from coming to New York because he lived in New York. He lived in Brooklyn. And you want to talk about somebody who actually released a record on Trax Records? Right there. The original Chicago label. Come on, everybody. And a gentleman that came up through the high school circuit in Chicago because a lot of the fellas all had these Catholic school parties. Imagine that. Nuns and priests allowing debauchery with house music. And here comes the guy coming out. This is acid. This is acid. Talk about being blown away that I'm with the fella that actually sang the song, This is Acid. But someone forgot to mention to him, we're not on Chicago time today. Because he came here on Chicago time. You know what I'm saying? He's all right. He's all right. This one here, his history is humongous. God bless him to work with Frankie Francis Knuckles. Some of the greatest records we've all played. Forget about him having massive hits with RuPaul, okay, which is more the commercial pop side. Before RuPaul became supermodel, Eric actually wrote that. You know what I'm saying? So everybody has, well, he produced, I'm sorry. Excuse me, I, 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 to be clear, he produced it. So you talk about years of experience. If you wanted to take, pull the prism back, what you see right now is us still pushing the envelope, still wanting to make new records, still wanting to focus on being the best we can be. We also believe we can do it better than everybody else because that's part of our game. But at the same time, we all adore and love each other. But just like every race for survival, you're gonna push every envelope you have. Inclusive with Maurice, for example, and I'll give you a reason why I may bring this up. When we travel around the world, and we put on, you know, these happy faces. Like last night, everybody's asking me, how, how, how'd you enjoy it? For me, it's more about how you all enjoyed it. It doesn't make any difference if I had a great time or not. The most important thing is that all of you came and enjoyed it. Now, we see the happiness. It's a thousand smiles in my heart. But here's the part that's hard. Getting on the plane. Dealing with immigration, dealing with losing luggage. He's right now, been, we've been talking about this quietly. This is a lot of times. This happens when, you know, you see us, we're tired. Uh, we could be going from gig to gig. Uh, we could have been in studio session all night and then running home quickly to shower and jump in and go to a JFK or go to London Heathrow or go to Malpensa Airport, wherever and then have to step up on a stage and perform at our best. 
That's not an easy feat. Or come up with ideas. Well, I got the bills due tomorrow, whatever's happening. You got this going on. You're getting a phone call for this. This is going on. That's happening. And you're having to say, I got to shut all that off. And now I have to be the entertainer. So I'd like to welcome our late host. <laughs> da, 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 da. This is Acid. And he's also been going out for the last couple of years at Out Here Brothers singing with those fellas. So he's been back on the stage doing his little moves. Old moves, and they work, and they're actually old is new, and new is hot. Okay? So, I'd like to welcome Mr. Maurice Joshua. Hello, everybody. How y'all doing? I'm, uh, again, I'm sorry I'm late. I was, I was walking here and just got lost. Didn't know which way to go. Also, trying, like Lenny said, trying to find my luggage. I, I haven't got my luggage since I've been here, so... Um, is um it's been a, a adventure, you know, washing my clothes, hanging them out like everybody else else, so and then drying them up again. So um, sorry I'm late. Um, so I don't know the format, Lenny. You, I, they gotta know what the purpose of. Oh, just a little brief history. All right. So I, I think I'm in this industry just a little bit, right? So, all right, a couple of years. So um, as for everybody else, been doing this for years. I started out as a horn player, musician. Um. Started out since sixth grade playing, um, started out playing clarinet. Then they moved me into everything. I played clarinet, contrabass clarinet, bassoon. Uh, and then I wind up playing tuba as my last year in high school, being a tuba player. Um, and the reason why I played tuba, because it was a little guy, about four feet, three inches, playing this big thing. I'm like, if he can play that, I know I can play that. I'm like, you can't do it. It's a competition thing. So I, he, he wound up being first chair, I wind up being second chair, and then it just always became, became a great friendship. So that got me into um, being a music, and because uh, my family was playing Earth, Wind & Fire every day, they big Earth, Wind & Fire fans, and um, being from Chicago, they're from Chicago, so it was just like, I thought, I was like, I, I, I like the music industry, so let, let me just, just dab into it. So did that for years, uh, met a best friend of mine in high school named Hula, which goes by Hot Hands Hula. Um, he produced a lot of big records for the Out Here Brothers, uh, Will Smith, Jazzy Jeff, Summertime, uh, Ruby Turner, everybody like that, Billy Ocean. So uh, we started a group back then. It was a DJ group. Um, so similar to the famous of uh, the Chicago Hot Mix 5. Um, so we wanted to start a, sub a suburb version of that. And um, we did that, and then um, as the scene progressed, house music started becoming very big. So um, we, the main thing is, as a DJ back in Chicago, you wanted to put out a record. That was like the go through. That was the end thing. If you're a DJ, you got to put a record out. Um, back then, you had to have a car with your name on the side. It was crazy stuff like that. So um, we, we put out a record on Trax Records. We found out about Trax Records through a lot of friends of ours. Uh, that we was working with. We knew Marsha Jefferson, Mike Dunn, Adonis, um, everybody that you've seen on Laywood that have been complaining on Facebook about Trek Records. We, we've been a part of that. So um, at that time, we were very young, 17 years old. So we was like, we want to put out a record. Um, so we just started dabbling in the industry. We started buying drum machine. First drum machine, drum machine Hula brought was the uh, Roland 707. Um, then we had an SP-1200. Uh, and then we brought one keyboard. It was a uh, Yamaha something. And the reason why I got that Yamaha keyboard, backstory of this, um, I saw David Cole one time when he was producing. He had that, that Yamaha DX7, I believe it was, something like that. And I was like, oh, they didn't make it no more. So I was just trying to find it. And back then, it wasn't like you can go online and find anything. So you just had to go in and talk to people and see if they had all the old equipment. So I brought an old Yamaha keyboard, and that's what we had to work with all the time. So um, once we got in that, we did an EP with uh, Tracks Record. Uh, it was myself and Hula. We did, it was, a e it was an EP. So at first it was supposed to be a single deal. So at the time <laughs> in Chicago, it was one guy named Liddell Townsell. He used to do all the records for Larry Sherman that if Larry didn't know who made the record, he made Liddell go make the record over again so he can put it out. So it was crazy like that. So we got word of this, and um, 
a local DJ back in Chicago, Farley Jack Master Funk, they call him back first, and Farley Funk and Keith. He was huge on radio, and he was part started a Hot Mix 5. So he went around Chicago claiming that he did a record of mine. So it was the first record I did. Uh, Be Respect was called I Got a Big Member, and we put it out on track. So it was very, very, right, very underground record. So Farley was going around saying, oh, I did the record, blah, blah, blah. So nobody knew who did it because we was just from outskirts of Chicago. So people really know what was going on. So I got a word of that. Um, Liddell was about to do the record over again for track for Larry Sherman. So me and Hula was that we was having a parties out and we was like, we had a friend of ours invite Liddell to the party at that time. Now at that time we was very young, immature, and we was gonna beat his ass because he he was gonna take our record. So we was gonna hit him up in the back room and beat his ass, right? Because I'm like, how you gonna steal our record? But um Liddell came to us just up front. Yeah, Larry told me to do it. He's like, I can take you to Larry tomorrow so you guys can talk to him if you guys did the record and you can just go ahead and do it. So that's where the history was made. Liddell brought us to Larry. We talked to Larry. Still immature and young. We didn't know about the industry. We was like, yes, let's put it out. We did the, he wanted the, I got a big member record, but I was like, I'm going to do two or three more records. So I did another record called Feel the Mood and then the B side was the record I did with Hula called This Is Acid. So, uh, we came into the studio. Thank you. Thank you very much. Wrote the record, did everything down there. And put the record out. It did, it's, oh, it did okay. We didn't know what was going on. A year later, we get a call that a gentleman of Les Adams out of the UK remixed the record. So at that time, uh, Ty Terry, Black Riot, all that stuff was huge. So Les took the sample, just like Ty did, rearranged it and made the record This Is Acid. So we get a call from Larry Sherman, and he was like, um, this record is blowing up big. And um, we was like, what record is it? So they said, This Is Acid. We are like, huh, that's the B-side. And we haven't heard the record. So once he sent it to us, it was a record, but it had no, the TR, and it had no acid in there. And we was like, why is it called, and why the remix have nothing like that in there? So my partner at the time, Hula, didn't like the record at all. Just didn't want to have anything to do with it, nothing at all. Um, got my first call from New York. Uh, it was a it was a club back in the day called the Post Office, and they was like in Brooklyn, that's right. And they was like, um, we want you to perform and do a show. And at the time, like, what's the show? Uh, what? <laughs> so at that time, um, I was managing in a teen club back then and spinning and still doing music. So we put the group together and we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to expect. Um, did the record, uh, went out there, did the show. Um, Hula at the point still was neglecting. He's like, I don't want to, Hula did the lead vocals to This Is Asset. We, we wrote it, he did the lead vocals. So at the time he was like, I don't want nothing a part of this because it's, it's not the original content of that did. So we was debating going back and forth. So we did the show at the post office. First show, it was like very, it was, you know, we tried to put a routine together. Uh, it went over well. After that show, record went crazy. Just blew up. Uh, Vendetta and m picked up the record. Uh, same label as uh, David Cole. Uh, ton of, yeah, Cavilla, yeah, Robert Cavillas, everybody. Larry Asgard was my guy. Bruce Carbone, uh, Martha Reynolds. Um, we had a great relationship. The record blew up. They took us everywhere. That record took me around the world and to get everybody who I know who are A&Rs now, president of record labels, uh, because they was going up the ranking. And, um, that was 1989 and, uh, 1988, 89. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In the 1900s. That was in the 1900s. Right. Um, so after I did that tour, we toured for a whole year straight, um, mainly in the States, nothing overseas. We didn't have, with that record, with this is and really don't, didn't go well overseas. But in the States, it took us everywhere. Uh, we did every nightclub in New York. That's why when Lenny said I lived in New York and Brooklyn for a year. Um, took us everywhere. Palace, Palladium, The Tunnel, uh, Red Zone. Uh, you just name it. Every club that was hot back under, with, with Junior Vasquez. You, that's right. That's right, Sound Factory. So then that's when I started meeting all the New York guys. 
and started becoming and having a relation with them and want to uh, be with them. You know, Johnny D. Lenny, everybody, masters of work. Um, once that record got over, we started doing the second thing. I was like, I, this is what I want to do. I don't want to be in the forefront like an artist or anything, but I want to create the music and, and just have a just an impact on the scene because house music was getting big. Um, I mean, everybody at the time was trying to do it. Um, and then my label mate at the time, uh, David and Robert, that created CNC Music Factory. Um, it was crazy. I was over his house, David's house. We went over his house and we was label mate. We always say we was going to do a record together because knowing David and Robert, they always sample and took bites and bits from everybody and read their records. And we was just like, yo, we got to get together. So we was label mates, always try to get do something together, but it just... Just everybody just blew up at the same time almost. So because it was uh, two Puerto Ricans and a black man, and it was yeah they so it was just crazy because it was like we all came up at the same time when it, and it was a great feeling because you saw the evolution of house music being born at that time, and then all the majors wanted being a part of it, which was great. But then after that came the DJ part of it, like we started a DJ, so we you know we just. I mean, we can talk days for that, but it's just the UK was very friendly to us. They they picked up on the music scene, which we love, and we always honor that because we like, and that's the place where we always want to go because you guys always appreciated that music more than anybody else, and it was just like unbelievable. And it was just like you go to different countries, can't even speak the the language, but they would know your song and your record that you play which was a great feeling that to this day that gets me going no matter what. Like Lenny said, no matter if you're traveling and you're tired or whatever, you come in here and perform and do a show for everybody to make sure everybody's happy and everybody's feel good. So the other night when that happened, you, there's no money, there's nothing else can give you that feeling that just having everybody together and having a great time. So just long story short, after that, I started doing my own label at the time. So I, I did... Um, uh, Vibe Records, thank you very much. Uh, I did uh, Music Plants. I did uh, a label I had with Strictly, uh, distributed by Strictly Rhythm called Ruckus Records at one time. Um, and then when we did the Vibe Records, we had a deal with MCA uh, out of the UK. So we had our artists on there, Michi, Deborah, Georgie, uh, Terry Hunter. Uh, I used to manage Terry Hunter and Aaron Smith. People didn't know that too, because was, they was part of our label. So they was part of the UBQ at the time. And then they grew up, and Terry just blowing up right now, doing everything underneath the the, the wind right now. So, um, and then just started travel, you know, working with a lot of guys like this. Um, always want to do a record with Eric. We, we're going to do it. Did work with Lenny sometime. Doing do one right here with Victor. So, that's right. And and during the pandemic, this this is the great thing that I use Lenny and be like, because you know I, I did a record that you guys just heard just recently with Barbara Cuckler called the B Crew. And it's with Don Toman and some other people. And um, I used Lenny Studio. And Lenny, I was much obliged as helping me out on there because I, I used the bassist Gene Perez that plays for Masters of Work a lot. Um, and so Gene couldn't do it in this place. So he's like, what can we do? I'm like, ah, Lenny. So I made the phone call to Lenny and we made it happen. And I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much. And it turned out great. Um, and that was the only one we did. Um, Ten City, right? I just did a record for Ten City News album. Um, I just uh, I went on the not the one that recently, but the newest one that's about to come out right now. We just finished that record. Uh, it's not an ultra; it's coming out on um, the new label uh, with Patrick Moxie. Uh, yeah, higher. Yeah, so that yeah, so that's it's coming out pretty soon. Uh, I got one more record to finish with them, and then um, I think it'll be done after that. But um, yeah, but just coming together, I did all that. Uh, started. After that, started doing all the remixes for all the major labels, urban acts. So it was a niche there because nobody was really doing the urban masters work this some, but then nobody wasn't really trying to commercialize on it. So uh, my big break came with Sony Music, and I did something with Dave German. He was, uh, at that time, they had a dance department at, at the major label, of records label at the time. So... Um, he could, yeah, he, right, remember that? He connected me with a group, and he said, Maurice, this group is going to be huge. Please work with us with this, blah, 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 all this stuff. So the group was called Destiny's Child. At the time, the name sounds very familiar. At that time, it was like, who the hell, and what is a Destiny Child? 
So uh, I got to meet with them, uh, with their father, Matthew Knowles. And it became a relationship because when we first did that record, Bills, 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 I was like, you know what? I want to do something like a live band with him. And thank you very much, sir. All right. All right. Uh, I wanted to do something live. So I did a whole live band with the Bills, Bills, Bills and did another mix at the same time. But they really enjoyed that because it was something different. And what I did was I had the girls come into Chicago and re-recut the vocals. So every record on a Destiny Child record that I did is recut vocals. They're totally different vocals from there. If you listen to the original, to the to to my version, every record was all new cut re vocals, except for when they started going solo. But any Destiny Child record was all recut vocals, different background arrangements and everything. So um, at that time, I say about the third single, um, they wanted to sign uh, Matthew. No, signed me as a management for a year, so I was under his management. And then we just started working incredibly. They was like, listen, you're going to be the exclusive remixer for us for a while. So, And I was like, yes, let's go ahead and do that. And, um, you know, we got that. And then it just carried over to every other, the, the ladies' solo career. So it was Beyonce, Michelle, Kelly. So then when I started working with Beyonce, the single that got me a Grammy was the Crazy in Love featuring Jay-Z. And that was the record that won for the Grammy that year. So that was my story. And I'm, I'm continuing making records. And I'm continue working with everybody and just love just love giving back and just love seeing that feeling, especially now that we haven't been traveling that much. This week proved to me that there's people out there still love our music, still love what we do. And that gets me the passion to keep on going. Because at some point you sit back, you'd be like, what's my purpose? Is this really, really working? Especially during the pandemic, because everything shut down. So other people had to do different things in order to survive, because like I said, this was the li livelihood, DJing, producing, making music for everybody. But when the world shuts down for two years, you can't make music, only people listen to music while they just listening at home. You'd be like, what I'm really doing? Because it's, it's not going nowhere. But then that's become like Claudia said, you have to do different, you got to think about streaming, what you, content. So we know content is king now. So that's what you got to have now. So thank God Lenny has the true house stories, which is great. Give it up for true house stories, y'all. I mean, he's telling his story, which he has great people on there. Please go check out that. If you haven't seen it, please go look at it. It's great work. And I just think that any content that you have regarding what you want to do and what is your purpose and what you love doing, someone will find that no matter. It, it may start out real slow. You may be like, oh, I got three likes. It's okay. I don't care if you got one like. Put it out. Do it. Don't wait on it. If you think about doing it, whatever you want to do, just do it. Even if you want to DJ, whatever. Do it. Just stream it. Just put it online and just have it out there so people can see. People will come see you. That's one thing about that. If they searching for it, they will come across something and you will never know because it's songs that I did or I played somewhere. People like I came across this long time ago and I'm just hearing it now. And it's crazy. Like Lenny said, everything old is new now. So you can still do it and everybody still had time. So this one thing about this industry is that and it's no limit, it's, it's ageless to DJ and it's ageless to write and hit records too. So you don't have to sit here and be like, oh, in my 20s, I could have wrote. No, you can write a record until, until you stop breathing, just long as it's great. So just keep on doing what you guys got to do. I love you guys. Thank you so much. And again, I apologize for being late. We'll forgive you. Sorry, Eric. God, my man, Maurice Joshua. Chicago legend in the house there. When I say legendary, we're going to talk about Eric Cupper now. So I want to take it back to the 70s for a moment. The art of the remix begins with a man named Tom Moulton. God bless him, just turned 81 years old and still mixing records. Okay. Victor's very tight with him, like a son. Helps him out as much as he can. But I'm going to say this, Tom still has the excitement, and the dream. So, the 80s come, house music begins. The business of dance music becomes part of what New York's landscape is about. Chicago and New York seem to rule the roost. Hacienda starts with Graham Park to play some of these records that are starting to cross the shores, okay? 
the remix part of it starts to become an official thing. Now, in the 80s in New York, you had Shep Pettibone, T. Scott, Arthur Baker. I mean, they were touching everything. Well, Frankie was as well. I'm going to talk about that as well because we're going to bring that to you in a minute. Frankie's touching, re-editing, and creating mixes in Chicago for his club. With the thinking that music is, because I remember Frankie telling this, music was changing, and I need to put music that I feel is appropriate for my crowd. And that's what was happening with the DJs. New York Radio, Timmy Regisford on WBLS, Tony Humphreys on 98.7 KISS, who's championing the records, who helped a lot of us in our careers. And why do I say that? Tony would hear a record and start to beat it every week. Friday, Saturday night, three nights at the club at Zanzibar. And next thing you know, six months later, not even, two months later, hello, are you Eric Copper? Yes. I'm such and such from AM Records, and I like to license your record. And da da da. And that came from across the ocean. Okay. But pre to, pre to that, as Maurice mentioned, Dave German, I want to also mention another person that's very important, Judy Weinstein, who was the manager of Def Mix. Okay. Some agree with me on this, some don't agree with me. She helped create this thing called reproduction and remix wording. Hello, everyone. We never had that before. So what was happening was you used to say mix by T. Scott. Mix by da-da-da. Not reproduction. Why do I say reproduction? Here we go. Back in the late 80s into the 90s, we were getting the songs. The music was cool, a little too commercial. It was no such thing as, oh, we want you to use the stems. We want you just to do what you do in the studio, and we want your magic. So what does that mean? You'd have to kind of take the vocal and start to reproduce. So this is where the magic comes. This talented brother would now hear a vocal with drums. So David would say to whoever he's working with at the time, Morales or Frankie, we're going to have the drums sync up the new vocal, Eric comes in, piano's there, he hears the key and changes the groove, changes the melody, puts these super cool chords under it. Dun, 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 and there we go. And that's the beginning of the real remix business starts. And he's one of the guys in New York, right behind the powerhouse of Def Mix right here. One of the most talented keyboard players. Needless to say, one of the most successful Billboard dance remixers of all time. You know what I'm saying? More remixes on Billboard are Eric Cupper. It's incredible. I don't even know the number. How much is it now? How Excuse me. Let's say this really slow. 122 number one Billboard dance remixes by Mr. Eric Kappa. Either played on, either played on or remixed myself. Probably about half and a half between working with other people. And but he's going to have to tell you how he finds dance music, people. Because this is the interesting story. You know, rock and roll guy, new wave guy is going to take you into the dance world. This is why I say welcome to True House Stories. I think it's Steve Silk Hurley. It's got to be. Well, that's okay. Okay, I'll tell you which one. I know which one. I'll give you a quick story. He just reminded me. Lee John. Everybody know Lee John? Okay. RCA Records. Arthur Baker produces the record. Imagination, right? It's imagination. The record's called Instinctual. David Morales is brought in to do a remix. And the keyboard player, if I remember correctly, was Josh Milan 
or Kevin Hedge was involved from Blaze. Everybody remember Blaze, the group? So Arthur gives the parts, I guess, or whatever. RCA gives the commission to Morales. David goes in. He puts the vocal up. They play the bass line out of key. Lee John has a canary. I don't like it. It's horrible. He doesn't want to hear nothing. I don't like this. This is a, are you? Because I know Lee. He told me. I hated it. I hated what he did. Well, New York City loved it. Ron Ricardo was playing it at, at Roxy at 1018 at that time. That record blew up. That was the first official, like I would say, David Morales remix where we heard a complete different music. So this is why I come to this man at the end, because the remix game was so important to the careers of a lot of the pop stars that crossed into dance music, correct? And actually did better and had a longer career than sitting in the pop world, you know? Imagine getting the Mariah Carey vocals and having a go where he's putting parts together, the piano parts, and it's so damn good that now Tommy Mottola, CEO of Sony Records says, we're gonna bring in Mariah to recut the vocal. First time that ever happened. And that was, I'd like to congratulate, and let's bring to the microphone, Mr. Eric Kappa. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in 1975, <laughs> I somehow convinced my father to let me take half of the $1,000 I got for my bar mitzvah to buy a synthesizer. I was so, at the time, anything with an electronic sound just blew my mind. I remember when I was a little kid and I heard good vibrations by the Beach Boys and that, that sound i was like what the hell is that and it just always anything that wasn't a normal traditional instrument or just anything that was when i heard like hendrix using flangers all over every anything with electronic process sound was just like blowing me my mind so from there i started messing around just playing with cassettes recording things with like I had this little drum machine like yeah exactly <laughs> I had one of these drum machines that were meant to play like with an organ that had like bossa nova and foxtrot and things like that and I just used to make these weird cassettes I had a boombox and a cassette machine and I would record on a cassette machine put that in the boombox record that back onto the cassette machine while playing another part so I was doing these like multi-track recordings as a 14 year old kid messing around. You know, I, I had no, there was no YouTube to teach me how to do this. I just figured out, wow, you could do this. I have a boom box and I have one of these and I could play at the same time and whatever. And then I got in a band playing covers and I learned 90% of what I did from Greg Allman from the Allman brothers, listening to his like these soulful bluesy organ stuff and from Santana. And if you listen, there's a song I did Latin blues back in the 90s. It's like an organ-based record. It's all Greg Allman and Santana, basically. Um, and from there, I got involved in a band that was kind of like, there was a scene in New York called No Wave. And it was like punk funk almost. It was just like, it was New Wave and punk was like, Again, you know, kind of a uh, backlash to commercial music. No way was a backlash to punk and new wave almost. And we were kind of doing our own thing. And eventually that band morphed into a blue eyed soul band. Almost like I always say, like Paul Weller from the jam ended up in style doing style council. And we had a singer. We had a. Um, we went through kind of singers and drummers like people change their underwear, but. It was a core of three guys with different singers. And we had a development deal with RCA through a friend of mine. Um, a friend of mine was 
date, well, through many, a few different connections, um, there was a guy named Justin Strauss in New York. He was the DJ at the coolest clubs in New York. He, he was the Ritz, the Mud Club area. And he also had had a band, like a uh, kind of power pop band earlier on, on Stiff Records. Um, and he took interest in my band and he wanted to produce us. Him and his partner at the time, Murray Elias, who was known actually mostly for reggae music. He was the guy who signed Sean Paul and Cutty Ranks and all these guys. And um, yeah, from, from there, the band kind of fell through. We got this development deal with RCA, but we, whatever it is, just fizzled out. But Justin and Murray were starting to do a remix or two. They did like a couple of remixes before they brought me in. They go, hey, we want you to play guitar on this record. I'm like, sure. So I come in, play guitar on it, and they go, well, we also want a bass line. I go, okay, there was a, a DX7 in the room. So I, we played it. I, we weren't sequencing back then. I didn't know how to sequence. I knew how to work a synthesizer, but MIDI was kind of a new thing. This is 1986. And we did this record, which was, I would call it a dance record, not a house record, but it was, you know, like a dance pop record. And then they brought me in to do this other record. It was by an artist called Bill Nelson, who is from Bebop Deluxe, if anyone from, uh, and we were hired to do a house mix of it. And we did. And from there, I think maybe the third or fourth record we did was Debbie Harry from Blondie did this record called In Love With Love. And we did a, a freestyle mix to it, kind of like Cover Girls, Show Me. That was kind of the vibe we were doing. And that was my first number one Billboard record. It went, went number one Billboard. But from there, like Justin introduced, I mean, I knew some house records. I had a bunch of 12 inches at home and I was a record collector and just a music head overall. But he kind of, you know, I never heard Marshall Jefferson until Justin played it for me um, back in 86. And, you know, Claudio mentioned something very, interesting he was like oh the, you know the house music you know whatever uh, it's until giles most keyboardists in new york who were like kind of keyboardists for hire thought like oh this is this what simple crap it's beneath me you know and whatever and i i was like no this is dope this is great this is this is the new this is this is it and i actually became known as the guy who actually liked his job <laughs> you know, like as to, to be hired as a keyboard player. So from there, I started, um, you know, Justin was the man who, who got me started. And then I got um, a call from a guy named Richie Jones. I think he was second, who we ended up doing this album by called Degrees of Motion. And uh, Shine On and Do You Want It Right Now became classics in the UK more than in the States. But, um, and then I get this call from, this, okay, one, one day with uh, Justin, there was a guy, um, we did this track at Supertronics, remember that? It was this little studio in, in Brooklyn. It was a little shady, what was going on there, but I don't know what, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know, if there might have been drugs involved at this place, who knows. But, uh, <laughs> um, the, this record, I think it was a Janice Christie record we were working on. And our editor, Chep Nunez, he, who passed away, sadly, um, he was still around, but he, I think he was too busy or he was out of town. He couldn't do the record. So uh, Justin, you know, being, knowing all the DJs in New York, he uh, said, he said, I'm going I'm to call this guy David Morales to edit it. And David did the edit on that record. And the funny thing about it, David didn't realize that he wasn't, that he got the master. Because very what you did with tapes, you took the master, you made a copy, and you edited that, chopped it up into pieces. He actually chopped up the master. <laughs> no, on the, on the half inch. Yeah, on the half inch. He chopped up the half inch. But it all worked out in the end. But, um, but after that, yeah, in 1989, I remember I get a call from David Morales, who already now had a few remixes out. And I remember he was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll give you a shot. 
I was like, cool. <laughs> and we went into Shakedown, where everyone met. Yeah, which was where I met Victor. I did a record with Victor and Lenny D back in the days when they were the original Brooklyn Funk Essentials was them. Um, and we solidified a relationship. We, and a week later, I'm in the studio working with David and Frankie on a record. I was a record by a British um, R&B act called Reed, R-E-I-D. And, and the funny thing is I also did the same record with Richie Jones. That happened a few times where I was called by two different producers to do the same record. Yeah. But that solidified my relationship with, uh, with David and then Frankie. And then Frankie called me in to do a few mixes. And we did, at that time, we did Alison Limerick, Where Love Lives. We did, finally, C.C. Penniston. Um, David did a bunch of stuff with the chant. I mean, it was that seminal period in vocal house history. It was just an amazing period. And, um, you know, I feel very fortunate to, to just stumbled upon in this opportunity. And uh, then one day, Frankie um, said, I got an album deal with the Virgin and I wanna come over, I, I set up a little home studio at that point and uh, just got my first Mac, it was 1990. I paid $800 for a 40 megabyte hard drive. Megabyte, megabyte. Yeah, we're talking like 40 floppy disks basically. Um, and he said, there's this, you know, this track I want to work on. And uh, it was this track who's called Workout. And, okay, back it up just a, a few uh, weeks before that. There was a um, Def Mix fifth anniversary party at the Red Zone. Third or fifth? I, don't, I think it was fifth, maybe fifth. 1989 or 1990. And I heard Frankie play for the first time. And I was so moved by what he was playing. I went home and did this little track and I recorded onto a cassette. And literally, I mean, it was at 909. I went, you know, you do bang, bang. You don't, when, you, when you're working on a drum machine, the brilliant thing about it, you don't sit there and think about it too much. You just go bang, 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 boop, boop. Oh, that sounds cool. You, you hit the wrong thing. You go, oh, that's better than what I would have actually thought of doing. And so I banged out this little beat did a bass line, did a pad. Um, then I said, you know what? I'm gonna do Bobby Condor's The Poem had this really cool flute solo on it. So I took the rack version of the DX7, which had this really nasty flute sound. It was terrible. I bathed it in so much reverb, you couldn't tell that it sounded so bad. And I did this flute solo. Then I did this little hook line and this one other line. So I think there's five keyboards and five tracks of drums in total. That was the whistle song. And when Frankie came in to do workout, I slipped in this cassette. I was like, hey, this is a track I did, you know, based on, you know, what I heard you playing the other night. And he was like, he heard it. He goes, this is really cool. He goes, let me have it and maybe, you know, put a vocal on it and we'll make it to the album. I'm like, cool. Well, Frankie takes the cassette. He transfers it to reel to reel he starts playing at the sound factory and people are running up to the DJ booth saying, what is this whistle song you've been playing? So the track was actually named by the crowd at the sound factory. Um, yeah. And then he, um, he said, you know what? This doesn't need a vocal, <laughs> but I'm going to do a version. He goes, we're going to put your version out on the 12 inch. My version's gonna be on the album. And he had Paul Shapiro come and do some live flute. And he, you know, he changed up, he, he kept my drums, but he, I think he, he, I don't know if he muted the clap or he made it really low and the ride really, it just had a different feel to it. It was a little punchier. Mine was a little lighter and swingier. And it worked great. It got, it got us on top of the pops. We were on top of the pops with Cher and the Shaman. I remember, <laughs> I remember the guy from the Shaman. Sorry? What? No, I, yeah, I probably do actually in a box somewhere. I might. Yeah. Well, I actually took that cassette version and I had to recreate it onto a DAT, and that's what ended up being the EK 12 inch. And yeah, I literally did have to do the same moves. I, every the drums were all done on a keyboard mixer, this little Toa thing. And when the kick dropped out, I was going whoop, 
<laughs> and you bring it back up. Yeah. I mean, everything else was done on the computer, so I that was arranged. But the drums I had to do all live, everything like that. Um, where, where, yeah, I remember uh, at, at the shame, the guy from the Shaman, he was backstage carrying an ARP 2600, which is this big analog synthesizer, this big. And he, I remember he said to me, he goes, if you ever need any wicked analog, give me a call. <laughs> he was like this synthesizer troll. It was, like, <laughs> it was hysterical. But uh, anyway, from there, at, at that, the whistle song was a big breaking point for me. Suddenly I get a call from Guy Moot, who was at the time, um, no, he was EMI pub music publishing. And he offered me a publishing deal, even though I had already signed up. He was, he was the first disappointed because I had signed the publishing for the whistle song to Death Mix for $2,000. Yeah. It all worked out in the end, and I got it back, and it's mine again, and I, I got, but, you know, yeah, it, be, you know, it became a Nestle commercial. I got paid from that, but um, he signed me to a deal. Um, he was the guy at EMI who was signing more dance-oriented artists. He, I remember him playing a cassette of this new acid jazz artist, and his name was Jamaraquai. You know, he was, it was, he was really on the, he had his finger on the pulse. And um, from there, my career just started taking shape. And I still was doing a lot of keyboards from other people, but I was getting calls to produce and do tracks. And I get a call. I, I was working with a guy named Larry T. Remember Larry? Larry T was a DJ in New York who did these crazy parties. These just, what, what were they called? The name of that party, man. It was at the underground. But anyway, he, he did this, he's just wild people dressed up like, you know, just really fun, like off the hook parties. And he brought me in to work on a couple of tracks that he did. And I remember bringing me to a track, I think it was on Vendetta, this uh, track um, with RuPaul, the singer, this, this, this drag queen who I never saw in drag for about two years before I knew him. I mean, after I knew him, but he brought me in to work on this track. And from there, I get a call. He just got to deal with Tommy Boy. And, and they called me to, uh, you know, try producing this track. And this track was called Supermodel. So I produced it. And then they go, you know what? We've got a couple more for you. Cool. They go, you know what? Just do the whole album. And I ended up writing half the album. And that was another big turning point. Suddenly I was producing stuff, you know, like, and pop artists were starting to come my way and stuff like that. So it was, it was very cool, man. It was, it was very organic, just... And the thing is, when if you see the crack in the door like that, you you jam your foot in. You might get bruised, but you gotta you gotta recognize the opportunity. Yeah, man. Yeah, well, very good question. And this is why, if you listen to especially the stuff I put out on my own label, it strays from what everyone considers. Like, I know when people, some people, when they hire me, they want my a distinctive sound. They want the that rhythmic, be it a piano or a Rhodes, bum, 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 you know, like, and very much like what we did with Director's Cut, talking about Frankie. Um and that big lush kind of sound, but I make sure I do other stuff. Like I, do, I was doing techno records on RNS with um, Lenny D. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always if you if you check out my discography carefully, you'll hear some weird shit. <laughs> I produced a a hip hop um, horn, all New Orleans brass. It was literally nothing. I was calling it drum and brass. Because and it, the tuba's doing the bass line. I took a tuba and mic'd it up and put it put a DBX 120 underneath it, wow. yeah, to to give it this sub. And we made an album for Hollywood Records. It's dope. I'll I'll send you a track. I mean, I was you know I've always been. I pride myself in doing all kinds of music. I've produced a, a British all-girl rock band, like heavy metal band um, from Brighton. I've 
you know, music in general just turns and doing other kinds of music other than house music always makes me do better house music for whatever reason. But yeah, there is the Eric Cupper signature sound. And sometimes I'm very happy when they go, you know what, we just want you to do whatever you want to do. And that's when I'll often stray from it. But there is something it's I notice people say, you know, I have a certain polish to my production. And that's the guys who turn me on to production. George Martin. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He produced this little band called the Beatles. Um, Quincy, you know, Quincy Jones, uh, Trevor Horn, um, Stevie Wonder. I mean, those three albums, Talking Book, um, Fulfilling His First, and uh, the, 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 um, the one with Superstition, the, the um, Inner Visions. Those three albums, the production is so impeccable and so perfect. And has a vibe, but it's also smooth, you know? And that's, I always, I didn't, I didn't like too polish. I wasn't like into Toto and stuff like that, even though a lot of, you know, the, the production's great. Yeah. It, to me, that was too slick for me. I always wanted a little bit of grit. Brian Eno, when he did all talking heads and stuff like that, it was just amazing. It had polish, it had ambience. And again, Trevor Horn, slave to the fucking rhythm. That album, oh my God, when I first heard it, it's one song. The whole thing is one song. And it's just like, it was almost, if you think about it, talking about remix, it's also it's just this one long remix of one song, just different versions of it. But um, yeah, and we were talking about, Justin was among the first to, what we would do back in those days, we had to do a version for them. And then we did a version for us. So we did a version that followed their song, sometimes used some of their instruments, but then we did the fucked up version <laughs> where we stripped it down just to vote. And that's the version that the, most of the DJs played. And that was the um, part of the evolution of being able to get away with not having to do the version for them anymore. We just started doing the version for us. So um, 36 years later, here I am. It bugs me out. And I was telling these guys, even in general, it bugs me out that here was this, you know, I started making house music in 86, when it arguably was 84, maybe, when it kind of started and was kind of bouncing back and forth between Chicago and New York. You know, Chicago and say, we started New York, people say, well, but Frankie was in New York, you know, making this kind of music and then moved to Chicago. And, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big chunk in history saying because yeah, when you're saying why can't the visual be that would be considered as the first house visual because it is drum machine and it is synthesizer. Yeah. But I think at the time they would that was still okay. That's gonna cost you, Andy. No. Um we, we we were saying about visual music got me. It was in New York, right? But we were saying that it has synthesizer and the, and the bass and and it, it, it all fits the stereotypical of, of a house record. But I think at the time, it was still considered R, like black R&B, R&B dance that they were saying back in the day. So I think that's where the issue was. Because it was on... I, I, wanted, I wanted you to add something else to this. Because a lot of people that grew up in Europe and the UK, they don't realize how much influence so many European records were, were in Chicago. And you, oh, most definitely, exactly. And if you could talk about that a little bit, yeah. just from a Chicago point of view. So I, I think I think what happened with us with with back in the day, like during the late '80s, we was getting all these imports coming in. So basically, what what as a Chicago house producer, this is what we did. We want to do what Eric was saying, strip it down barely, because some of the records you get, it, it, it's too polished. It, 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 too many strings, too many breakdown. So we just wanted that raw, gritty baseline and probably a synth, and then the drums going to move it completely. So that's what we did for, like, creating that house sound. Like, we recreate the bass line. So a lot of the records that Victor was telling, we'll do some stuff and just take the bass line out and rock it like that, and people be like... Yeah, like, oh. like, like uh, Steve Silk Hurley, he said yes. that music is, is the key. Yeah. yeah, Steve Silk Hurley, he personally told me. He said, music is the key by J.M. Silk, right. was the bass line to I Want It, be re I want it To Be Real by John Rocca, yeah. and he just flipped the bass line, right? And that's, and, and, and that's what we usually do. 
as as you hear it as a DJ producer, you can't steal the whole thing. Or I'm sorry, you can't take the whole thing. You have to recreate the whole thing and do something different. But I wanted to add something to that, Eric, from from the whole Death Mix production. When I was coming up, because I guess started this with my brother Xavier Josh, who was DJing. Um, he made me because he knew Frankie. He he knew Frankie back in the in the late 70s and was going to the warehouse. And I lived vicariously through him because I I'll see him coming home and he'll be coming home like when I'm getting up, I'm like, where you been? He's like, man, we was at this party with Frankie Knuckle and here, he'll bring home reel to reels and play the music like this is what he was playing. So that's what got me into DJing. But it was Frankie and David because as a DJ, I was listening to all the music and all the production. And I'm like, I want to do that. Because when I was doing This Is Ass and traveling in New York, I wasn't putting out that many records at the time. I was just touring. But then going to the tunnel, going to the red zone, and hearing David, and that was his club. And when I say going to the red, it brings back so many memories because a lot of records broke there, at there in the tunnel that made you think like, wow, that's history. And that sound, after we get off tour, I was like, I want to do something like that too. Because when I heard the re the one record that I heard in the resume that still to this day was the uh, What You Gonna Do For My Loving yeah. that Dave and Frankie did. And that record, yes. And that record right there got me was like, oh my goodness. That's when I fell in love like on the remix tip. Uh -huh. And, and it, that was playing, peak at night, playing it. Drop it, not, it's not like a beginning record, whatever. Back then you can play it. It was the form, the way you format the crowd, you had the crowd. I remember we was at the tunnel and they was playing uh, Keep On, uh, um, Soul to Soul, Keep On Moving. Yeah, yeah. Played the record, everybody on the dance floor just stumping to the beat and, and he broke the record out and just ticked, and just, it was amazing. But I just wanted to say that you guys was a big influence on, on myself because y'all had me do what I wanted to do. Hey. There's one funny little story about that record was during the session, I was, I'm a goofy guy. And during the session, I was just goofing around. Um, you know, I did this big string pad that with the whole thing. And through that same sound, which is a Proteus string, I just goofed around and just as a, literally as a joke, I did the move your body thing. And Frankie and David went, put that in. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, <laughs> put it in. And then we took the bass line and made a separate bass track that didn't follow the chord tracks. It just sit, sat on the one note. And that became the break and the end yeah, for that record. Yeah, but one, a couple of names I wanted to mention that, you know, because we were talking about Prelude. Francois K, who I've worked with extensively, he's a close friend. This guy, talk about influencing everything we did. I mean, his work with like D-Train, you're the one for me, he mixed that record. To me, that record is a, a cross of a house record in a way too. I mean, you could put that on the middle of a house set and no one's gonna say Jack, they're just gonna dance. Um, that whole prelude thing and what Francois was doing back then was unbelievable. Um, and yeah, I, I, I was saying 36 years ago, when house music was in its formative stages, if anyone told me that 36 years later, house as we knew it then still would exist now. Like it really, like you, the records, a lot of the records we were playing are 30 something years old. When you played Alice in Limerick last night, that was one of the biggest records of the night. Yeah, that's 31 years old. If anyone said that this would be a, a lasting genre, you look at punk, Real punk lasted, what, five years? Disco lasted, what, eight years, nine years? Um, even like, you know, the funk sound lasted a short period of time. House music is still here 36 years later and has a gazillion subgenres within it. So we now we have classical, we have rock and roll, we have blues, we have jazz, we have house. You know, it's really a thing. <laughs> so I just wanted to end on that. I'm just, I feel so fortunate that a gazillion years later to be able to still be doing it, still getting phone calls. Incredible story and moving and true. Everything's true.
you know, we got the, the moment like in Bronx Tale, man, when they all walked in and, you know, the, the Don Quilly, the Don guy said to everybody, I'm going to ask you to leave once. I'm going to ask you the same way. You're going to have to all leave. <laughs> and you refuse. Andy's going to lock that door. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're not going to throw you a beating. So that ends. This, beat you it's an amazing. This was, I'm so glad I was able to get a chance to um, replay this live performance that we all did at Vocal Beat, Vocal Booth Weekend in Alicante. So on that note, thanks to Andy Ward for doing such a great thing, getting me the video, of course, organizing a fantastic few days out there in Alicante. Victor Simonelli, Brooklyn's own, Chicago's own Maurice Joshua Giant himself, Eric Cupper, out in New York, he lives in Connecticut now. I mean, amazing. You heard his story. And Claudio Pazavanti, Sunlight Square. Take care, everyone. Have a good night. See you all very soon. And we have some amazing guests lined up. Ciao and stay blessed. <laughs>